What a great song. Thank you for the new song. Coming with everything abandoned. What a great way to come to church. You know, when we let go of all this stuff we keep trying to hold on to, that means our hands are free to grab hold of more of God. Such a great, great, I love that song. Thanks. I'm going to probably do that one again so I can learn it better. Yeah. I need to do a song like 30 or 40 or 100 times. <laughs> then I got it. <laughs> uh, Pastor Mark, as you know, is in Europe. He celebrated his birthday on Friday. Um, we have uh, Rob Selleck with us next week. He'll be teaching the 23rd Psalm. You're probably familiar with that psalm. Rob will be here. After the week after that, we have uh, Pastor Mark. And then after that, Pastor John. At the end of the month for two weeks, he's coming in. If you, um, last Friday, Rock of Ages, for those who were here, you got to hear uh, Doug Atterbury speak on being thankful. Uh, <clears throat> what a great young man of God he is. Right, Ron? I mean, that was beautiful. Just being thankful for things that we typically would not be thankful for. It was just a very powerful message. Speaking of a powerful message, Psalm 39 is where we're at today. But I want to show you something. Can I have that first slide? I want to show you something. When I was in high school, I went to Whittier High School. And I was in the band at Whittier High School. And when I came into the band room my freshman year, this sign was on the wall. Uh, it was done in calligraphy, black letters on a big white piece of poster board about like this. And the band director, Mr. Alan Treffery, had it mounted high on the wall. So when he stood on his raised platform about this high while he conducted us, the sign was right over his head or up high. And I did not know what the third word was when I was a freshman in high school. I, I read it and I thought it said, results, not alibis. I did not know what alibis was. I'd never heard that word. I'd never read that word. But I didn't ask anybody what it meant because you don't want to look stupid. It's okay to be stupid, but you just don't want to look stupid, right? So some days went by. I don't, I don't remember how many, but a period of time went by. And I finally got a dictionary and looked it up. And it, oh, now all of a sudden it made sense. It's the word alibis. Alibis. Now that made sense. Results, not alibis. Our band director didn't want us to make excuses. He wanted us to make music, make every note count. And that's what our psalm, Psalm 39, is going to teach us. Not about music, but about life. Life is short. Make it count. Make it count. How do we make our lives count? We're going to find out as we go through this psalm. First, let's pray, please. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Um, for a glorious day. Thank you for everyone that is here today. Please bless them by the power of your word. Psalm 39, Lord, is so deep. It is so deep. There is so much here for all of us at so many different levels. And I pray you would open our eyes and our hearts to, to see and to receive your truth. And I'm sure this psalm is going to touch people in different ways today. And we ask for you to do that because you are the revealer of truth, not me, you. We ask your spirit to fill this place now as we open your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to Psalm 39. It's a good one. It's a really good one. That's probably silly to say because I guess they're, they're all very, very good. Psalm 39. Let's read it together. It says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. 
I was mute and silenced. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely, every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely, every man walks about as a phantom. Surely, they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Verse 7, And now, Lord, what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand. I am perishing. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely, every man is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Psalm 39 is often read at funerals. It's actually referred to as a funeral psalm. And I understand from a friend of mine that it's often read, or at least part of it is read at Rosh Hashanah, the celebration of the Jewish New Year. In honor of Pastor John, I want to start off with a quote from J. Vernon McGee, because if you remember PJ, he quoted J. Vernon McGee all the time. Here's what McGee says about Psalm 39. He says, This remarkable psalm reveals to us the frailty, the weakness, and the littleness of humanity. I love McGee's choice of words, the littleness of humanity. If we're honest with ourselves, probably most of us have spent our lives trying to be big shots. We want to be important people. But God is telling us, no, the reality is you're all here today, gone tomorrow. We're little. We have little life. When David wrote this psalm, he was going through a serious trial in his life, but we don't know what the trial was. When you go through deep waters yourselves, do you ever journal? Do you ever write down your thoughts, your raw, honest feelings, your emotions, your deepest, darkest thoughts? Do you write those down in a diary or in a journal or a notebook? Would you want to share those private thoughts with the whole church? Would you want to give your, your pages of your book to our, our worship leader and let him put it to music and sing it to all three services? This is what David did in Psalm 39. This psalm he wrote for Jedithun. That's his choir director. He wrote, he wrote these vulnerable words that exposed David's confusion and exposed his sin and his weakness, and he gave him to the choir director to put music to it and sing to the whole church. David's a brave man. You've got to wonder what Jedithun thought when he saw these heavy lyrics, you know, does he go to the king and go, gee, Dave, we were kind of hoping for more upbeat music this week. It's heavy stuff. The theme of Psalm 39 is the vanity or the littleness of our lives. I, let's hear the big idea. In honor of Pastor Mark, I did a big idea and I did an outline. Because he always does those and those are so helpful. So I'm copying him. The big idea is... Our lives are short, and they are meaningless. 
without the Lord. Here's my outline. First three verses, David is silent. Then he writes about the brevity and burdens of life. The brevity and burdens of life. Pretty heavy, pretty dark. But then he finishes the psalm with the fact that the Lord reigns over the brevity and burdens of our life. So he goes from silence into darkness and then into the light. Let's read verse 1 again together. Uh, if, you, if you read your Bible much, you realize verse 1 is one of the more challenging verses in the Psalms, maybe in the Bible. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. The first two words are important because they are emphatic. David wrote, I said. David has is declaring that he has made a firm decision. He is absolutely resolved to do something. What is he resolved to do? To keep his mouth closed. Huh. Why? Because he knew that he and we have a serious problem. And it's right under our noses. It's our mouth. It's so easy to sin with the words that come out of the opening in our faces. The Greek philosopher Publius said, I have often regretted my speech, never my silence. The Chinese scholar Pandita said, Silence is the means of avoiding misfortune. And Psalm 39 says that sin is always just one careless word away. A little off-color remark we make just to get a laugh. Sharing some juicy little bit of gossip that we just can't keep in. A criticism. An unloving comment. A complaint. An unguarded mouth is an unholy mouth. Chuck Swindoll summarized Psalm 39, verse 1, so well. I would just like to read you what he said because I can't think of any way to say it better. This is what Chuck Swindoll said. He said, this is what it takes, a conscious, tight muzzle on the muscle in your mouth with emphasis on conscious. To accomplish this disciplined objective, I offer these three suggestions. Think first. Before your lips start moving, pause 10 seconds and mentally preview your words. Are they accurate or exaggerated? Kind or cutting? Necessary or needless? Wholesome or vile? Grateful or complaining? Second point he makes, talk less. You increase your chances of blowing it if you talk too much. Furthermore, compulsive talkers find it difficult to keep friends. Conserve your verbal energy. The third point Swindoll makes is start today. Fit that muzzle on your mouth now. It's a project you've put off long enough. Great words. Like David, 
we all have to be really especially careful of what we say in front of people that do not believe in the Lord, may even be hostile toward the Lord. Why? Because we need to understand that what we say will either make Jesus more attractive or less attractive. When our words are hurtful or rude or ill-tempered or gossipy, envious or judgmental, when our words are phony or complaining, boastful, untruthful or raunchy, we make Jesus look like nothing anyone needs. If we profess to follow Jesus, yet we speak with an unguarded mouth, we make ourselves and our Lord a laughingstock, a joke. Someone once said, be careful how you live. And I would add, be careful what you say, because you may be the only Bible someone ever reads. David said, I will guard my ways. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. He did not say, gee, I really want to do this. I'm going to go away and pray about this. No, he said, I will. He made the decision. So men and women of God, we need to decide right now if we are going to take the sin of our lips seriously. David's greatest fear is that he might say something to sin against God. Is that your greatest fear? Is that my greatest fear? If it is, we must decide. We firmly decide to put a muzzle over our mouths. You know, David probably talked a lot about the danger of words when he was with his son Solomon, maybe when they were sitting around the supper table or washing the chariot together. Can we have Proverbs uh, 10, 19? (coughs) This is what his son Solomon wrote, is this. Where there are many words, transgression is what? Unavoidable. Where there are many words, it isn't like, well, transgression or sin is highly likely. It's unavoidable. Where there are many words, sin or transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips, restrains them, is wise. That's an act of our will, to restrain our lips. Can I have the next? Here it is in the New Living Translation. Same thing we just read in Proverbs. This one says, yeah, talk, you know, talk too much leads to sin. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible. And keep your mouth shut. (laughs) That's pretty plain, isn't it? Can I have Matthew, please? Here's what Jesus said about our words. Our Lord said, He said, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified. By your words you'll be condemned. Are we listening to David and to Solomon and to Jesus? Are we getting the message? Our words are dangerous and they have eternal consequences. We must guard what we say. And when in doubt, when in doubt, say nothing. Let silence fill the room. You know, we cannot get our words back after we say them or text them or email them. Will Rogers said, letting the cat out of the bag is a whole lot easier than putting it back in. And Will Rogers also said, never miss a good chance to shut up. Have your words ever led someone to Christ?
Have your words ever prevented someone from coming to Christ? We all, all of us, need to guard our mouths very carefully. Let's move on. Verse 2. I was mute and silent, David says. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. David was going through deep waters. We are clearly not seeing David at his best here. And there's an undertone of rebellion. He is refusing even to do good or say good in his current condition. And the longer this went on, the worse he felt. Verse 3, my heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. David was musing. And his thoughts were confusing. They gave him heartburn. While David mulled things over in his mind, all those negative thoughts were just running around in there, bumping off each other, rubbing off each other, creating friction. It started a fire inside of him. David was a man of strong emotion, but his emotions were getting the best of him. Do you ever let your worries get the best of you? Sure. Yeah. Who doesn't? What happens when we dwell on our problems? What happens? Two things. First, we always make ourselves feel worse. We never feel better after dwelling on our problems. We always feel worse. Secondly, we make God seem smaller. When our problems look bigger to us than God, it means our outlook becomes grim, hopeless. The more David thought about his situation, the more miserable he felt. Finally, he had to take the muzzle off and speak. That takes us to verse 4. Lord, make me know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Thankfully, the words that broke David's silence were words of prayer. David stopped fretting, started praying. David addressed God as Lord. It means my master, my king, my sovereign. David brought his problems and his questions and his concerns and his doubts to the only one that can answer our questions and give our lives purpose and meaning. Remember, the big idea of Psalm 39 is our lives have no meaning outside of Christ, outside of the Lord. Now we know, if you read your Bible very often, you know that the Bible teaches us to come to the Lord with reverence and with a grateful heart, with a thankful heart. But when sorrow or fear, heartache, confusion, pain, is all you've got in your guts. The Lord invites you to spill your guts to him in prayer. One of the great benefits of reading through Psalms is that it shows us such a wide range of real, very real human emotions we all have, things we all face. King David wrote Psalm 39. Remember King David, when he was a shepherd, he valiantly faced down that big giant, Goliath, and he defeated him. As a, as a warrior, David fought countless armies. He defeated them too. He was victorious. But here, he's broken and defeated by some unknown event in his life. Can we relate to that? We can all be so strong one moment. But then life 
Life can make us so tiny, just feel so tiny and defeated the next moment. Thank God we have his word to see us through those times. David chose not to utter a word in public, but alone with the Lord, he totally unburdened himself. He said, wonderful, Lord, make me know how transient I am. What a great prayer. That's a good one to underline if you underline in your Bible. Show me how transient I am. What a great prayer. Lord, show me. Show me how tiny I am because I need to remember how mighty you are. I need to remember. I need to remember it now, just how mighty you are. Sometimes we just got to get out of our own way so we can see the Lord. It's hard to stop worrying, especially if you're really good at it. But when we fill our minds with all of our troubles, there's so little room for the Lord to guide us and comfort us. David prayed, Lord, let me know my end. Make me know my end. David found comfort knowing that this would one day end, that one day he would die. David was unafraid to face his death. Most Americans are afraid to talk about death, but death is not the number one fear in America. The number one fear in America is still public speaking. Death is number two on the list. So the statistics suggest that most Americans would rather die than speak in public. Why wasn't David afraid to face death? Because he knows what happens to us when a believer dies. When a believer dies, it ends our time of preparation and it begins our time of reward. What happens when an unbeliever dies? What happens when we die without trusting Christ as our Savior? In that case, Death ends our chance to prepare and begins our time of retribution, punishment. Death is something very, very serious and very much to be afraid of if you have not trusted the Lord. Please, don't let that be you. It's a blessing to understand how brief our life is because it allows us to hold on to the things of this world very loosely. Verse 5, Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely, every man at his best is a mere breath. David says, behold. In other words, aha, I see it now. In verse 4, David asked the Lord to show him how brief his life is. And right away, right away bam, verse 5, here's the answer. Your life is a handbreadth. What's a handbreadth? A handbreadth is the smallest natural unit of measurement from David's day. It's basically four fingers wide. That's a handbreadth. So compared to Almighty God, eternal God, the everlasting God, a four-finger life is nothing. Look at verse 5 again, and then look at the end of verse 11. Verse 5 says, Surely, or certainly, or absolutely, every man at his best is a mere breath. And then at the end of verse 11, it says again, Surely, every man, every person is a mere breath. These verses tell us for certain that every one of us, even the very best of us, is here today and gone tomorrow. And did you notice in your Bible that verse 5 and verse 11 are the only ones that end with the word selah? Selah. Most Bible scholars think the word selah means a musical pause. And I think it's significant that that word appears only after verse 5 and at the end of verse 11 because the Lord is saying, pause right here. 
Pause right now so you can consider and apply this truth. What truth? The truth that our lives are a mere breath. The fact that we have so little time to prepare for eternity. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ because you have your reasons, the Lord is saying to you, pause right now, right here. Pause and think. Your life is a mere breath. Your time is going to be up before you know it. Come to Christ now while you can. Now the people of David's time lived at a much slower pace of life than we do in our culture. So pausing to think would be something very natural for them. That's a reasonable request. In our culture, I think we've become afraid to pause. In fact, there's a, the New York Post wrote an article and it, they described the American lifestyle as society's self-destructive addiction to faster living. Let me read to you just three short paragraphs from that article from the New York Post and see if you think this is accurate. It says, society is caught in a chaotic spiral. People are chasing money, power, success, and a wilder, faster pace of life. Just like any addiction, people are out of control in their behaviors, feelings, and thinking, yet they believe they are normal. This is progress in America. Don't pause. Don't reflect. You'll fall behind if you stop moving. Fast at any cost is the mantra of a stressed and distressed American society today. And the article concludes by saying, technological advances were supposed to free up creative thinking, but the mass of incoming information has actually eroded our attention and our creativity. People have less time to reflect on anything as they become dominated by a need to act, a need to be online, robotically always checking. You can't concentrate on anything. That's our culture, isn't it? Psalm 39 says, overbooking and overloading ourselves is not the answer. We need to pause and consider how short our life is, not so that we panic, but so that we prepare for eternity. How do we prepare? We prepare by putting our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And why do we do that? Because Jesus is the only one that can transform our puny little lives into glorious eternal ones. Verse 6. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. As David prayed for God to give him clarity, God revealed three facts about our human condition. And here they are in this verse. First, every person walks like a phantom. We live no longer than a phantom. A phantom is a shadow. We live, our lives are like a shadow. We're here one moment, we're gone. That's fact one. Fact two, we make an uproar for nothing. This means literally that we stress ourselves out, trying to worry and fix things that are out of our control. So we spend our lives worrying and trying to fix things out of our control, manipulate life so that it works out right. Third fact about our lives is we work our whole lives to acquire wealth. And when we're gone, everything stays behind. And we don't know what happens to it. We're mere shadows. We spend our whole lives stressing ourselves to the max. 
to acquire as much stuff as we can get our hands on that can't do us any good now after we're gone and for the hereafter. Okay. So what's the point of living? What is the point of living? We get the wonderful answer in verse 7. Verse 7, And now, Lord, what do I wait? David's asking that question. Lord, what am I waiting for? What is life all about? The answer, my hope is in you. In the first six verses, David had regrets behind him, trouble all around him in the grave ahead of him. That's a pretty dark picture of life. In verse 7, I can almost hear Dave gasping in awe as the brilliant light of the Lord broke through the clouds. David declares, Lord, I'm taking my eyes off my troubles. My confidence is in you. Hope in the Lord overcomes fear in the world. Now, hoping in the Lord doesn't mean that we cross our fingers or rub a rabbit's foot and we just hope it's all going to work out somehow okay. That's not what this means. Hoping in the Lord means we trust him. It means we believe that he is in absolute control of everything, even the things we don't understand, and even the things that hurt. Hoping in the Lord means we raise our expectations of him and we lower our expectations of what we can find in the world. Can I have Philippians 1 on the screen? Here's how Paul summarized life, which is exactly what Psalm 39 has just said. For to me, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. That's a bright way to go through life, isn't it? When we trust in Christ, he makes our lives count right now and forever. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. That means rich and satisfying. Jesus said he came to give us rich, full, satisfying lives. And in John 10.28, Jesus said, I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What sounds like the better deal to you? Let's pause and think. What's the better deal? Do you want the brief, frail life the world offers? Here today, gone tomorrow? (laughs) Or do you want the full, rich, everlasting life the Lord Jesus offers? You get to make that choice. Verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. Now that David is focusing on the Lord, he's aware of his own sin. It's amazing how that happens to us, isn't it? When you come before the Lord, you become aware of your own sin. David has been stressing and worrying instead of trusting and praying. And he asked the Lord to set him free from the penalty and the power of his sin, all of them. Only the Lord can deliver us from all our transgressions, everything we've done in the past, all the transgressions we're doing now, and all the transgressions of the future. Verse 9, David says, I've become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Now verse 9, verse 9 can seem like David is clamming up again. 
like going back to that same miserable, silent condition he was at at the beginning. But no, David is in a very different state of mind and heart in verse 9 than he was when we started this psalm. At the beginning, David was afraid to speak. He was afraid because of his doubts and his worries. In verse 9, David is mute because he has accepted his situation. He's accepted it. David is not biting his tongue because he's trying not to complain. David has his mouth closed because he has no complaints. He has no complaints. He has fully surrendered to the Lord's will. Psalm 39 teaches us something, and if you're taking notes, this might be the the note to write down. It was for me. Psalm 39 teaches us that everything God allows in our lives is best and right for us, even when it hurts. I'll say it again. Everything that God allows in our lives is best and right for us, even when it hurts. Verse 10. Remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. All of us, every single one of us, go through painful trials. And trials can do one of two things. Trials can make us bitter, so that we walk away from God. Or trials can drive us straight to the Lord as fast as we can get there to seek his loving kindness and his mercy in the trial. That's what David's doing. It's good to go to the Lord and pray for mercy when you know you can't take anymore. Verse 11. With reproofs you chasten a man or a person for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely, every man is a mere breath. Okay, this is not saying that every trial we go through is a punishment from God. It is not saying that. What it is saying is that when God disciplines us, when he disciplines us, his chastening is meant to teach us, to correct us, to warn us and deter us from sin. We also see in this verse something important. All those earthly things that we treasure, well, they deteriorate too, just like we do. Please turn to Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. You all know this passage, I'm sure, quite well. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. Here's where Jesus teaches us about treasure. Treasures that decay and treasures that last forever. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We need to understand something very important from the Word of God. There is nothing wrong with earthly treasure. Not one thing wrong with early, earthly treasure. The problem is with our hearts. <laughs> when we fall in love with the temporary treasure of this world, and I know it's bright and I know it's shiny, when we fall in love with these temporary things and we try to get our hands on as much temporary stuff as we can possibly get and save as much temporary stuff as we can get our hands on, we are dooming ourselves to a life of frustration and emptiness. Ultimately empty. In contrast, treasure in heaven is everlasting and it's absolutely incorruptible. 
if we love the eternal things of God, if that's what our life is about, then we can enjoy that treasure now as we enjoy the blessing of God every day of our lives. And even more, we can look forward to the ultimate enjoyment of that treasure on the other side of eternity. Okay, the saying is true about treasure. You can't take it with you. But we don't have to worry about taking it with us if it's already there waiting for us. Verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. As David prays here, tears begin to fall. Our tears are prayers too. God hears our tears. Romans 8.26, wonderful passage for this, says, In the same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When life gets so overwhelming, sometimes we just need to go to our Lord and cry. David declared, I'm a stranger with you, Lord. Notice he didn't say, I'm a stranger to you says, I'm a stranger with you. If we belong to Christ, then we are sojourners in this world. A sojourner is somebody that stays in a place temporarily. We need to treat planet Earth like a holiday inn. This is just temporary lodging for us. Two weeks ago, I was in Florida for two weeks, and I stayed at a hotel for two whole weeks. It felt like a long time. What would have happened if I thought I lived there and I started remodeling the room and went outside and planted a garden and pushed the walls out to get more room, build a kitchen or something? I mean, that's silly, right? Because I don't live there. I'm just staying there. That's our attitude for earth. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here as believers, here's where life gets very, very confusing for you and me. When we spend our lifetimes as believers putting down roots, increasing our square footage, building our empires, and carving out our territory, these things can become more real to us than the things of God. And when that happens, we wrap ourselves and we trap ourselves in a blanket of false security. And our wrong priorities cause us huge anxiety levels. You have to worry about this stuff all the time. Go to sleep and think about it. Take a sleeping pill so you can put your mind to rest. You wake up thinking about it. We should enjoy every single blessing God gives us in this life. We should totally treasure it and enjoy it. But we have to remember this is not our home. Our place of permanent residence is in heaven. That knowledge changes how we live and what we love. And, of course, the thought of going home to be with the Lord is very appealing. Can I have 2 Corinthians on the screen? This is the New International Version. This sums it up perfectly. It says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, outweighs all our troubles. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So to answer the question, how do we make our lives count? This is the answer. Fix our eyes on the eternal things of God. Fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13 of Psalm 39. Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. When I was in elementary school, there was a teacher named Mr. Morris. I never had him as a teacher, but I'll never forget him, and here's why. When he had playground duty, he never had to shout or use his whistle if he saw children misbehaving. All he had to do was look at you. When he fixed his eyes on you, his eyes were like death rays. I saw tough kids melt under his glare. This is what David is saying. He was feeling the disapproving eyes of the Lord upon him. And we don't know why, but David was melting under God's displeasure. And he prayed, Lord, look away. I've had enough. I get it. Look away so that I can smile again. I need to be restored. It's quite likely David was advanced in years when he wrote Psalm 39. And he did not want to end his life with a cloud over it. He wanted to finish well. He wanted to finish his days with the joy of the Lord. Don't we all? So that's Psalm 39. It teaches us that life is over before we know it. And it challenges us to pause and think. How do we want to live out our days? How do we want to live these days that we have that are so few and so precious? Do we want to settle for the littleness and frailty of life where we chase shadows while death chases us? Or do we want to live each day with the Lord and for the Lord where he gives our lives meaning and purpose now and forevermore? Life is so short. Let's make it count. Our prayer team will be here at the end of the service if you'd like prayer for anything at all. We'd love to pray with you. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us so clearly the littleness of our lives apart from you. Lord, I pray for all of us that are going through trials right now. It might be every single person here. Please let us see that everything you allow into our lives is best for us, even when it hurts. Help us be men and women of prayer, not men and women that worry over things we cannot control, as if you, Lord, are too small to deliver us. Let us live for you, not for ourselves. Let us seek you always for the purpose and direction in our lives. And please, dear Father, when we leave here, let us remember to put on our muzzles and be determined determined to guard our words from this day forward. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, our King, our Sovereign, and our Master. Amen.